can I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3? George is about to come and bring us the end of Ecclesiastes 3, and before he does, we're just going to read there from verses 16 to 22. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Good morning, everyone. Uh, for especially for the visitors amongst us. My name's George. Uh, welcome to Moore College. It's great to have you along with us uh, this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we desire to know you and to deepen our understanding of you. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at your word and consider it, would you please grow our love, our faith and our hope. May your spirit do his good work in us as we listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've ever watched any of the Godfather movies or perhaps the Ocean's Eleven franchise movies, yep. well, have you realised or have you actually found yourself realising that you're backing the baddies? Now, in Ocean's Eleven, you might think, no, hold on, they're the goodies. Actually, they're not, if you stop and think about it. Um, there's a whole lot of crime taking place, even though at sometimes you might be cheering. Now, it's a little more stark and a little more obvious in The Godfather, but still, you somehow get behind these characters who are doing the most awful things, illegal things, and you cheer for them. If you've ever played the computer game Grand Theft Auto... Think about what the objective of that game is. <laughs> Grand larceny. It's all about getting away with deeply criminal behaviour. Now, these are all just on a screen and, you know, they're, they're not real in, you know, in, in that sense, but they still can subtly affect the way that we uh, look at the world. And when we do look at the world, we realise that, well, this kind of stuff actually happens. You know, there, there is crime in our world. Bad stuff does occur. Suffering does result. Criminal activity and corruption in the world is absolutely terrible, especially when it occurs in governments, in judiciaries, in law enforcement or in the military. It can make life an absolute misery for people. Now, thankfully, here in Australia, we, we've actually got it really good. 
Australia ranks really highly in terms of fairness and transparency uh, when it comes to these kinds of matters, but we know that we're not immune from them. Those of us who are of an age can remember when there were royal commissions into police corruption. Corruption's paralysing. And when wickedness occurs in a place where justice is meant to occur, it's not just simply on a screen and it's not just a neutral thing. It goes fundamentally against the way God actually set up this world to function. It goes against what he requires. And Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, when he looks around at his world, what is it that he sees? He sees in the place where there should be justice, there is wickedness. It's all he sees. Kohelet, just to recap, uh, recalling last week's sermon, Kohelet is living in the post-exilic era. He himself is a Davidic descendant, but he's not ruling the people of God. Other people are. And as Kohelet observes those who are in power, all he can see is wickedness. It's one of the reasons we know that he himself is not the king. He has no power to control this kind of thing. He observes such wickedness and he can do absolutely nothing about it. And so he tries to find something that might right these wrongs. And so in chapter 3, verse 17, Kohelet turns to conventional biblical wisdom to comfort himself, to provide some kind of consolation. And he says there, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. In other words... Sure, there might be a time of wickedness right now and corruption and abuse, but there will be a time when judgment will come. Justice will prevail. But as soon as he said that, just as, as he actually utters those words, he actually recalls the poem that he gives in the first half of chapter 3, that there is a time for every purpose under the heavens. God is in charge of the times. There's a time of wickedness and there is a time of justice. But if God is in charge of the times, why is there even a time of wickedness? I mean, why doesn't God just end it? Why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he intervene? And as Kohelet struggles with this tension, there are a few conclusions that he might come up with. He might conclude, well, the reason God doesn't do anything about it is because he himself is wicked. And Kohelet, through the rest of his discourse in the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes really close to reaching that conclusion but he can't bring himself to actually make that conclusion. He stops short because he also can acknowledge God's past, God's track record. He looks back and he sees what God has done and what God's character is like and the conventional wisdom that he uh, quotes occasionally and he, he just cannot affirm 
that God is a wicked God. God has demonstrated that he isn't. So the other conclusion he might come to is that God just simply is unable to deal with wickedness. He just doesn't have the power or the reach. But again, he can't actually affirm that as a possible conclusion because, well, God's in the heavens. God's the one who controls the times and the seasons. He he has supreme sovereignty over absolutely everything, as we read this morning. He has control over the number of hairs on your head and about when a sparrow falls. It's the classical conundrum, I guess. If God is all-powerful and he's all-good, why is there suffering and wickedness in the world? Or, to put it another way, in, you know, in a kind of a self-focused way, if I were God, I'd end all the pain. Uh, British comedian and actor Stephen Fry, who is a very outspoken atheist, uh, was once asked in an interview what he would say to God if he ever met him. And playing along with the hypothetical, this is what Stephen Fry said he would say to God. How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Now, like Kohelet, Stephen Fry was grappling with the reality of pain and suffering against this notion that there is a good, omnipotent deity who is in charge of everything. And as Kohelet surveys God's pervasive sovereignty, he he shows that nothing is beyond God's control. Kohelet's not an open theist who thinks that somehow history happens to God the way that it happens to us. That's not Kohelet. God doesn't face history passively the way we do, we humans who experience it. Um, History happens to us, but God actually shapes history. And so what's the conclusion that Kohelet comes to? God must be testing humans. God does test humans. God tested Abraham in Genesis 22 by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. God tested Israel in the desert. God tested Israel in the land as he left the nations behind there to test them. God tested King Hezekiah when the Babylonian envoys came to him seeking an alliance. Now, testing, God does test humans. And testing is actually meant to improve you. It's a bit of a diagnostic to show you where you are, but also an opportunity for you to improve. You can thank the faculty for setting you all the assessments later on. (laughs) But even even then, Kohelet struggles to make sense of this notion that God tests humans because he finds suffering so utterly belittling and even dehumanising. It's like Kohelet is protesting at this point. Since when is suffering a just and righteous test? 
Who in their right mind would think that willfully inflicting pain and suffering on someone is a good way to improve them? No good parent in their right mind would deprive their child of food and drink to the point of malnutrition in order to improve their child. And Kohelet was living in a context where people were experiencing that kind of thing. We don't have time to go into it in detail now. You can ask me about that later. No loving husband in his right mind would ever swing a fist at his wife in order to show how much he cared for her. I mean, notions like that are so obscene, they are utterly ludicrous. I hope we can feel the weight of what Kohelet is considering here. I hope we can understand why time and time again throughout his discourse, throughout the book, he keeps saying everything is meaningless. He just doesn't get what God is doing or how to make sense of the very real and genuine pain and suffering that he sees in the world. And so in verses 18 to 21, he comes to the conclusion that God does all this to prove to human beings that we're no better than the animals. It's survival of the fittest. If you can get your way in life, do so. Because then you die and who knows what happens then. Both humans and animals die, Kohelet says. And notice, remembering he is living in the Old Testament era, he's completely agnostic on what happens to them after that, whether there actually is some kind of post-mortem filter that you know animals experience this and humans experience something else. He just doesn't know. All he can say for certain is that God revokes the life force of both humans and animals and beyond that, Nobody knows, he says. And so because death is the ultimate equaliser and no one knows what lies beyond that, he concludes in verse 22, it's survival of the fittest. I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that's their lot. For who can bring them to see what their future will be? Who knows what's around the corner tomorrow and who knows what's beyond the grave? This isn't you know, a kind of carpe diem, go seize the day, go get them pep talk. It's actually a statement of complete and utter resignation. Most people are not kings wielding absolute power, not even Kohelet, even though he is a Davidic descendant. It's survival of the fittest. If you can get your way, do so. But remember, God's the fittest. He gets his way 100% of the time and you don't. So the best that you can aim for in life is eat, drink and be merry. That is if God even sees fit to give you that. Because you're just a nameless creature under the heavens among many other nameless creatures and then you die. 
the mother of a friend of mine uh, recently passed away and she spent her last few days in hospital and she was absolutely terrified of what she was about to face. It was very clear that she was going to die. She was a very superstitious woman. And as she faced the reality of her own mortality, she was utterly terrified. And she said to my friend, if only I knew what was waiting. If only someone had come back to tell us what's on the other side. And my friend said, someone did. Jesus, Mum. Jesus did. My friend's mum listened, rapt, as my friend told her the gospel. And there on her deathbed, 24 hours before her life ended, she came to faith in the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus provides real hope. No matter how real the suffering and the pain is that we go through or that we see on our TV screens, our news feeds, the hope we have in Jesus is real. The incarnation, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus puts it all into perspective. The marvel of the incarnation means that God, who, is sovereignly, who sovereignly determines history, has stepped into history and he has experienced it the way that we do. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows death. The death of the Lord Jesus shows us that God is not our enemy. We are our own worst enemies. As inherently sinful, self-centred human beings, we try and impose our own will on others and we harm others in the process and we also end up harming ourselves. And we say that if we were God, we'd end all the pain. Well, what happened when we actually had that power over God, when God submitted himself to human will? What did we do? We killed him. Thankfully, God, in his absolute genius and mercy, used that as the very means for saving us. As the apostles later recognised, the authorities of their day willingly conspired against the Lord Jesus and had him executed, but they did what God's power and will had determined to do. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus provides us with real hope. As Paul stood in the Areopagus talking to the Ephesians and proclaiming the gospel to them, he said that God has determined a day when he will judge the world with justice and he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. It leaves the question of why there is still times of suffering in our world and we have to remember that Kohelet was living in a BC world. He was living before Christ. He, he didn't have the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to draw upon. He didn't know the end point of the story that he himself was a part of. But the Lord Jesus is where we find the perspective on things. Jesus doesn't necessarily provide us with the answer in every instance. 
But he does give us perspective that death is not the end. That yes, God is in control, even over the suffering. God doesn't force his will on people. He confines our wills within the limits of our created nature, which he himself gave us. He gave us a human will that he created and we all live with the limitations that that entails. And God gives us genuine freedoms within the limits of creation. But we end up using those freedoms in such destructive ways as we harm ourselves and we harm others. If God just simply imposed his will forcefully on, other, on, on people, no one would love him. Forced love is not love. Genuine love requires freedom to be truly love. And what God does is he enters history, lives our life to the point of death and coming through death, rising to life again. And then by granting us his spirit, what does he do? He redeems us. He redeems our wills. He redeems our wills so that we who would never have willingly chosen to love God now can because his spirit moves us with the gift of faith and repentance. The Trinitarian God whom Christians love and worship is both immensely powerful and he is immensely loving and he will put things right. He has loved us with an everlasting love that is not dehumanising. Quite the opposite. It is redeeming love. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Corinthians, he said, If I fought off wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised... Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. But he goes on to write, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.